Amen. Genesis chapter 32. I, I hasten on. I want to jump into this passage of Scripture. It is in the moments that are leading up to Jacob's crossing over at the river of Jabbok. It's a crossing place, a transition place. And he is moments away from meeting the brother that he betrayed in Esau. And to put it simply, Jacob is scared. And I'm just going to pick up the story in verse 6. It says in the English Standard Version, And the messenger to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. You can almost hear the gulp when Jacob hears, You mean the brother that I betrayed and defrauded and that I stabbed in the back? The, the same brother that said that he would kill me if he ever saw me again, that brother is coming and he has 400 men. You can almost hear him gulp hard. <laughs> and listen to what the scripture says. It says, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking that if Esau comes into one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Divides everybody up so that somebody can survive. And Jacob said, O oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O oh Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and your kindred that I may do you good. He said, God, I, listen to this, am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. In that moment when Jacob is facing the end of his road, he cries out to God. And he says, God, I'm not worthy of this. I'm not worthy of your mercy and of your grace. And I'm not worthy to come back home, but you asked me to. And so Jacob found an experience. We would read, and, I, and I'll, I'll save time and not read the scripture, that that night Jacob wrestled with God. And God touched him and changed his life. Forever. Tonight, or, or today, this morning, I want, I want to preach to you about starting over. If it's all right, I'm just going to try to usher us in to the mindset that's necessary for next Sunday, at Baptism Sunday. Because sometimes you just need to start over, amen? Can we just pray, Lord, right now? I pray your anointing would be on this service, God. I know that your favor is here, that your grace is here, that your mercy is here, that you are calling somebody to start over again, God. We pray in the name of Jesus, God, to come and have your way in this place. We ask it according to your will and according to your promise. And everybody said amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Amen. Sometimes you just need to start over. Can I get an amen? Anybody ever started a project and it was going so badly that it couldn't be salvaged? You just had to start over. Maybe it was a relationship that went wrong, and you got off on the wrong foot, 
And you went to that person and you said, can we just start over? Anybody ever done that? Life has a way of bringing us to these moments where we just need to start over. We call it regret. We, we call it recalibrating. We call it a lot of things. But, but that's where Jacob is in the scriptures. He needs to start over. And as Esau is bearing down on him and he's facing the consequences of all of his choices throughout his lifetime, Jacob realizes I need to start over. That night, he came face to face with regret. And I found some interesting facts about the subject of regret. 90% of people say that they have a regret about something. Anybody here have a regret about something? I want to know who the 10% are. Amen. It's, there's a tithe of people out there <laughs> that have no regrets. I, lo I love to meet them because I'm not one of them. 90% of people have regret about something. In literature, uh, regret is the second most mentioned emotion after love. Researchers at Northwestern University found that there are five main areas of regret, and they include romance. Anybody ever have a romantic regret? Amen. Uh, they are family. Anybody regret how you handled something in your family? Romance, education is another one. Educational regrets, I wish, I tell my kids all the time, I wish that I had listened to my father and before I went to Bible college, I would have gotten a degree. I, I have educational regrets. So here I am, I'm 38 years old and I'm, I'm going back to college. I regret the decision that I made. Anybody ever come to that conclusion? Maybe you regretted the major that you chose. The career that you chose, because career is another regret. There are financial regrets. Maybe that credit card that burned a hole in your pocket when you were in your 20s came back in the form of a regret. <laughs> I mean, the stuff was nice, but the regret left a bitter aftertaste. Can I get an amen? <laughs> we all have regrets. 44% of women have romantic regrets, but only 19% of men do. Think about that for a moment. Regret runs the gamut of human experience. One in four homeowners have buyer's remorse. 29% of adults under the age of 34 regret posting something on social media that they believe could harm their career. I'm preaching to somebody today. <laughs> uh, there's a button that is called the delete button. You can just go delete that if you have those kind of regrets. 25% of people regret sharing selfies. Amen. Let me tell you something. The percentage is a lot higher for those of us regret somebody else who posted a selfie. <laughs> There's all kinds of regrets. And the science tells us that opportunity breeds regret. The more opportunities we have, the more likely we are to regret what we didn't do and how we didn't handle it and the road that we didn't take. And regret happens to breed change. Because nothing is so powerful to change the way that we move forward with how we behaved in the past. When we meet regret face to face, that's when we are ripe for a change. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, I love using my kids as illustrations because they can't stop me. A few weeks ago, Rylan and Rowan were right here. And Rylan, my five-year-old, jumped on Rowan's back 
and wanted to piggyback ride after church. See what happens when you kids play in the altar? <laughs> but he jumped up and Rowan tried to pull him up a little bit higher. And when he did, his elbow popped out and it was dislocated and fractured in the process. And for about the next week, now, now he's okay, he's fine. But we took him to the doctor and the doctor said he'll be all right. He just hurt himself in the process but, uh, and, and fractured it. He'll be okay. Everything's going to be all right. But, but if Ryland just turned his hand a little bit, he would start squealing and crying. And he was in pain. And for the first time in his life, I saw my five-year-old discover what it was to feel regret. Because Monday morning when he woke up and his arm was hurting and he was crying, he after he calmed down a little while, he turned to Jocelyn and he said, Mom, are time machines real? <laughs> she didn't put it together. She said, no, uh, no, baby, I don't think they are. Why do you ask? He said, well, I saw a YouTube video about a time machine. And if there was one, I would go back to yesterday. And I wouldn't jump on Bubba's back at all. And so when we went to go meet the doctor, I had Rylan ask the doctor, I said, maybe the doctor knows if there's a time machine. And so when the doctor came in, finally he was about ready to go out, and we got a good prognosis and report. And so I said, oh, Rylan, didn't you have a question for the doctor? And he said, oh, yeah. And he asked the doctor, do you have a time machine? And the doctor thought it was the funniest thing. But as I, I begin to think about that, how many of you would say the same thing about your life, that after there are decisions and roads that you've come down that if I could just go back, if I could just change the outcome of my choices, if I could just go back in time, back to that moment where I was about to jump in and I didn't see what was coming. You see, there are some decisions that if we knew how they would end up, we would never make them at all. Maybe we would go back and we wouldn't say those words to that spouse that led to a divorce. Maybe we would go back and we wouldn't do that action that led to the, the break in relationship with a loved one. Maybe if we just had known we would go back and we would fix it all. We would never make the mistake again. I'm preaching to somebody here already. Because how, how compelling is the idea of starting over? I just wish that I could do it again. Because if I could do it again, I wouldn't mess up like I did last time. I wouldn't fail like I did last time. I would go back in time and I would say the right words. I would do the right thing. I would tell my kid I loved him instead of getting after him and driving him away. I would pass that job up. I would walk away from that opportunity that brought me heartache. You see, Genesis 32 contains a unique moment in the life of Jacob. It is a confluence of his past and his future. He's coming back to the land of promise. He's coming back to the land that God swore to his father Abraham and Isaac. He's coming home because God said come home. His future is laid out in front of him. But as he's on his way to a new season, and as he is coming into his future, Jacob comes face to face with his past. Because Jabbok was a place where the new and the old would meet together. Because as he's getting ready to cross over into the new, the messengers come back and tell him Esau's coming 
and he has 400 men. Now, to understand the moment, you have to understand the man, Jacob. Indulge me for a moment while I give you the briefest history that I can of the hooky shyster known as Jacob. Jacob was born the youngest of two twin brothers, the second born son of Isaac. He was born moments, seconds even after his older brother Esau. And those few seconds proved to set the tone and trajectory of his life. Esau came out hairy, the Bible says. But Jacob came out holding on to the heel of his brother. And Genesis 25, 25 says the first came out red, all, uh, uh, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. His name literally meant heel catcher or supplanter, which means the one who takes the place of another. He spent his life with his eyes set on stuff that other people had. He set his eyes on what Esau had that he didn't have. That was his name. Supplanter. Heel catcher. And it became his life. He spent his days dreaming and scheming about how he could displace his brother for his own benefit. And Esau was hairy, but he was the firstborn. And even though he was hairy and red, he still had all the benefits and the rights of the father's blessing and the bigger portion of the inheritance that was to come. And Jacob spent his days dreaming and scheming about how he could displace Esau, how he could get what Esau had. His name is Jacob, and that is who he became. There's a name for this. It's called nominative determinism. That is a... 75 cent way of saying name-driven outcome. What his name was is what he became. What they called him is what he became. And there's a New York University professor named Adam Alter that has researched how names often will shape our destiny. He's listed numerous examples of this. Daniel Snowman is the author of a book about polar regions. His name led to his destiny. From the time that he was a bumping baby, he might have been born in the Bahamas. But his name was Snowman, and so that's who he became. And he's not the only one. Derek Kickett grew up to be a soccer player. Stephen Robotham was a British Olympic rower. He never stood a chance because his name determined his outcome. Amen? Now, here's the, here's the title of Adam Alter's study. He said this. He said, would Usain Bolt be the fastest man in the world if his name had been Usain Plod? How is it that the fastest man in recorded history's last name is Bolt? It's nominative determinism. The name determines the outcome. And Alter concludes that researchers have shown 
that our names take deep root within our mental world and draw us magnetically towards the concept that they embody. And so consider in Scripture that there was a man named Bartimaeus. And the word Bar means the son of. And Timaeus means the unclean, rejected, defiled, contaminated. So from the time that Bartimaeus was born, he was the son of the rejected, contaminated, the, the defiled one. And it was that same blind Bartimaeus that when he sat on the roadside calling for Jesus, they tried to shut him up, don't trouble the master. Rejected, despised, and put off to the side. And somehow, decades before it would happen, his name determined his outcome. Is anybody with me this morning? Names matter. And what you are called matters. So many people label or, or labor under these labels. Names are descriptive words used to pigeonhole, stereotype, and marginalize, and oftentimes those labels will stick and the person becomes who people said they would be and that is certainly the case with Jacob because he spends his life bullying his way into his birthright when his brother comes out from the field and is at the point of death rather than just loving and helping his brother he bullies him at the point of his need and says I'll trade you birthright for a bowl of soup and Esau is so desperate and weak at the moment that he does it that's the kind of man that Jacob became. He bullies his way into his birthright. Then later the scripture says when he found out that Isaac was ready to bring the blessing. That Isaac called for Esau. And, and he, uh, he wanted to bring him some meat and come in and, and Isaac would bless him there. And when Jacob heard he and his mother hatch a scheme. He wants what Esau has. He wants to take his place. And so the Bible says that he fashions a sleeve of goatskin because Esau's so hairy. And he cooks up some goat, tries to make it taste like deer meat. And he brings it in to eat Isaac while his eyes have grown dim. And he fakes his way into the blessing of his brother, fooling his father for his own benefit. Let me just say it this way. Nothing was off the table for Jacob when it came to getting what he wanted out of life. He was a man with a plan. He had ambition. He had drive. He wanted what he wanted, and he would do whatever it took to get it. He would fight later with his father-in-law over flocks and wives, and everything that Jacob did was in service of his own future. He sets his sights on the life that he thought he wanted to live, and it was no holds barred from that moment. He is the kind of guy that was going after his own way and will. A man with a plan, ambition, drive, desire. He's a hustler and a fighter, and he'll take your feet out from under you if you don't watch him close. But he also left a littered past of bad feelings, of broken promises, of busted up relationships, and bad consequences. And Jacob had grown rich in the process. Somebody hang on with me. We'll get to the preaching part here in a little bit. But I, I just feel that I'm ministering to somebody because Jacob had left a trail of wreckage behind him. He's grown rich, he's gained wealth, he had worked for two wives, he had a family and plans and a future. But when he decides to come back to Canaan, he has to face the music. 
he has to pay the piper. Because you can't live your way and cut people out from under their own uh, uh, dreams and plans and, and take the place of others without causing damage and without breaking things in the process. And the brother whose blessing he had stolen was now waiting on the other side of the river of Jabbok. And Genesis 32 pulls the veil on what was happening in Jacob's head. Every bad decision, every crooked deal, every instance of broken trust, every trick and scheme of his supplanting past was coming down on him. And Esau was drawing near. He could feel the end coming. Jacob was on high alert because he could sense this might be the end of my story. This might be the conclusion of the matter. Esau's coming and he has 400 men. And if I could, I would just call the name of those men consequences. Consequences. Esau was marching with 400 consequences coming behind him. And every one of them had judgment with Jacob's name written on it. We're coming for the supplanter. We're coming for the one who messed us up and took us out. We're coming for the one who is a betrayer and a backstabber. And all of the consequences are coming down on Jacob. Esau draws near. And Jacob is left at the crossing of Jabbok to wonder how is it all going to end? How am I going to get out of it this time? There's no talking your way out. There's no forming and fashioning a sleeve. There's, there's no bargaining. All the leverage is with the consequences. You can't work your way out of this one, Jacob. You can't strategize and scheme your way through this one it's just a matter of time and so that night he divides his family into two camps his family and flocks in order to minimize loss and sends him out ahead hoping to insulate those he loved from the consequences of his own failures and that night Jacob's regret lay heavy on his shoulders is this the way that it will end is this how it comes to a conclusion? Will I lose everything that I fought to gain? Is this what my life will become? And there are things that we, if we had known how it would have ended, we never would have began. Jacob sees his life through the lens of regret. I just wish if I could go back to that campfire with the pot of soup, if I could just go back and love my brother, maybe, maybe my kids wouldn't be in danger now. If I could go back and, and, and just back off, just let life take its course and not lie to my father. Maybe, maybe then, maybe, maybe then my kids and my family would not be in danger. If I could just go back, if I could just do it again. You see, there are decisions that we would not make if we could make them Again, words that we would not speak again, actions we would not take again. There are people, hear me today, that we would not date again. Can I get an amen? There are lies that we would not tell again. There are roads that we would not take again. And if we only knew how it would have turned out, we would have done it differently. And Jacob needed to start over. It's what Jacob really wished, that he had a time sheet. If I could just go back, if I could just fix it all. 
If I could just erase what I had done, if I could just start over right here and right now, then everything would be okay. And Jacob cries out to God that night. And Jacob calls on God in the midst of that moment. And hear me, he prays honestly. I love this. He prays honestly. He knew he wasn't worthy and admitted that he was afraid. And that night, the scripture says, and Jacob was left there alone. <clears throat> Somebody say at the crossing of Jabbok. He's at a crossing place. The crossing of Jabbok was a ford in the river. It was a place where they crossed the river back into the promised land. And that night, Sister Doris Jacob sends his family on ahead. He puts his family between him and his consequences. And he sends them on ahead and he stays there behind. And the Bible says that night something transpired in the life of Jacob. Because nobody else was there to bail him out. It was just Jacob now. Nobody else had made the decisions that he had made. Rebecca wasn't there. His mother who had aided him. And Laban wasn't there. And Esau wasn't there. And Isaac wasn't there. Nobody but Jacob and God. And Jacob, the Bible says... Wrestle with a man till the breaking of day. Genesis 32 ushers us into this scene of struggle. And there Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till the breaking of day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was out of joint when he wrestled. And what I'm saying to you is Jacob refused to let go when the angel of God showed up in his Hold on with me. He said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? What is your name? My name is Jacob, supplanter. I am who they say I am. I am what they have labeled me. I'm not hiding from it. I'm not running from it. I admit it freely and openly, openly that I am what my name says that I am. I'm Jacob. I'm the liar. I'm the deceiver. I'm the one who took Esau's legs out from under him. I'm the one who lied to my father. I'm the one who fought with Laban. I'm the one who's schemed my way through everything. I am Jacob. God says to Jacob, in the shadow of the coming consequences, God did not come to struggle with him there so that he could take him out. But he met him there so he could bring him through. And when Jacob came face to face with the deficiencies of his past, the Bible says that grace began to open up for his future. And God says to Jacob, he says, no, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but your name is going to be called Israel because you have striven with God and with men and you have prevailed. Jacob, if you had just fought with men, you would still be the same. If you would just struggle with men, you would be the same. But he said, you met with God and you held on until he changed your life and hear me sometimes we think God meets us at the point of our consequences so that our heavenly judge can bring down the hammer he deserved it everything Esau had and more 
But God doesn't meet us at our crossing place because he's come to destroy us. But he meets us at the water crossing so that he can renew us, so that he can restore us, so that he can make us over again. And he says, Jacob, your name was called Jacob, but now I'm calling you a child of God, a man that has prevailed with God. You are Israel. And there at his end, Jacob found a new beginning. There, when he thought it was all over, he met with God. And God said, your yesterday is gone and now your tomorrow is open. My goodness, I feel the Holy Ghost in this place. You see, God doesn't come to you at the point of your need so that he can destroy you, so that he can defame you. He didn't come so that you would get what you deserve. He came so that you would get what you don't deserve. And Jacob, you don't deserve it. He said, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy. But God says, I don't care if you're worthy. If you'll just hang on to me, I'll give you a new beginning. My goodness. Woo. Woo. God gave him a new name. Somebody say a new name. God gave him a new name. What he was called, he wouldn't be called anymore. God gave him a new name. He said, your name is going to be called Israel. And listen, you won't go far in the Bible without realizing that God is in the name-changing business. He called Abram, Abraham, and he gave him a new name. Sarai's name was changed to Sarah. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Solomon's name was changed to Jedediah. Why am I emphasizing the last syllable? Because in each instance that God changed the name, he didn't just give them a new name, Brother Chase, but every time he inserted his own name into their name. Oh, I'm just, y'all don't know, I just arrived to preach just now. I just got here to preach. All oh, that was just getting here. Because... He said, your name is no longer Jacob, but I'm going to put my name on you. And when my name is on you, your past is erased. And you have a new name that is written on your life. He said, no longer will you be called Jacob. Your name is Israel. He says, El is the name of God. It is an Old Testament Hebrew name of God. And he says, Jacob, not only am I going to change and erase the consequences of your failures, but I'm putting my name on your life. And when they say your name, they're saying my name. When they utter your name, they're saying my name. Because I'm putting my name on your life. Woo! Y'all have to pardon me. I never had seen this until I was studying last night. But God, he does the same thing with Abraham. He puts Yah in his name. He puts his name upon his name. He does the same thing with the barren womb of Sarah. Because Sarai, she couldn't make children. But when God's name gets on her, that which was barren is now fruitful. Because there's been a change of name. Abraham was called great father. But when God's name got on him, there was stuff inside of him that wasn't there before. A new tomorrow. And so he called him a father of a multitude. See what happened is Jacob came to a crossing of water and he met God at a crossing of water. 
And it was at the crossing of water that God changed his name. It was at the crossing of water that his past was erased. It was at, oh, is anybody here and preaching between the lines? It's when he came to the water that everything began to change for him. My, 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 my. You see, God is still in the business of changing lives and of changing names. He's still in the business of erasing your past and giving you a brand new future. He's still in the business of rearranging destinies. He's still doing it in the New Testament. Because water baptism is when we assume a new name. Hold on with me. On the, on the eighth day of every Jewish boy's life, was a significant day when he was eight days old they would take him to the priest and he would be circumcised but it wasn't just the circumcision which was a sign of covenant with God in the Old Testament but it was also the day that they would declare his name and so circumcision was both a sign of covenant with God and a naming event because that baby with no name with no future when he came out of his circumcision meeting, he came out with a new name. And listen to me, just hang on for a second. He received his new name, and it's still largely practiced today in Judaism, that on the eighth day, a new name is given. And there is a distinct similarity between that practice and water baptism, because Paul said that baptism is the naming ceremony of the New Testament. And listen to Colossians 2.11. He says, in him also were you circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He said this is a circumcision, but it's not a physical circumcision. He said it's a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. What are you saying, Paul? Paul is saying that baptism is not just a public confession. It's not just a ceremony to tell everybody that you joined the church. But he said there's something that happens at the crossing of the water. He said it's where you get your new name. There's something going on at the crossing of the water because baptism is the naming ceremony of the New Testament. John 3, 5, Jesus had Nicodemus come to him by night and Nicodemus said, Master, we know that you come from God. And Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, Hold on a second. You're saying I've got to start over? How can a man be born again a second time? Shall he enter again into his mother's womb? How can he be born again? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't misunderstand. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit. He said, you must be born of water and of the spirit. Jesus was saying that there is a new birth that happens in the life of somebody who is facing all the consequences and all of the regrets. He says, when you come to God, you must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. You must be born again of water and of spirit and hear me today that there are no instances in the book of Acts the early church history even where someone who believed was not baptized in fact you can find scripture after scripture that links saving faith to water baptism 
Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are saved through faith. And in 1 Peter 3.21, Peter says that we are saved by baptism. And so the simple reality is that water baptism was viewed by the early church and early church history as the step of faith in a brand new Christian. The early church believed that being born of the water was water baptism. And those who came after the earliest church, the apostles believed the same. Just hold on. If y'all got ten more minutes... Maybe five. Justin Martyr, AD 51, wrote that being born of water is baptism. Irenaeus, early church father, said that just as Naaman was cleansed from leprosy in the Jordan River, so too do we find cleansing from our spiritual leprosy through water baptism invoking the name of the Lord. Tertullian, the, the father of the Trinity, said that no one can be saved without baptism. Citing the words of the Lord Jesus, unless a man be born of water and spirit, he shall not have life. And on and on it goes. Hippolytus, Clement, Cyprian of Carthage, Cyril of Jerusalem, even Athanasius, all of them recognized that the birth of water was a step of faith taken in water baptism. And that when you came out on the other side, everything was different. I'm not talking about a magical dip in the water. But I'm talking about a name changing ceremony just like happened to Jacob at the crossing of Jabbok that when we meet him in the waters of baptism Paul said we are buried with him in baptism that we are baptized into his death the closest you will ever come to the cross of Calvary is when your toe dips into the waters of baptism because Paul said we're not just baptized as ceremony we're not just baptized as ritual we're not just baptized as a fun exciting thing to do he said but what you do when you come to baptism is you bring all of your hurt you bring all of your shame you bring all of your sin you bring all of your past all of your consequences all of your regrets everything that has gone wrong in your life in every area in which you failed God and others and he will meet you there at the water and when you come out on the other side your past is erased Peter said be baptized every one of you for the remission of your sins what happens at baptism what happens just like Jacob met God and God changed him when we are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of our sins we leave yesterday behind. We're turning over everything that we've done and everything that we are. Stand with me. And we are saying to God, God, I'm starting over. God, I'm beginning again. Everything that I was, everything that I've done, everything that has happened over the course of my life that has dragged me farther from you. God, I'm not worthy. See, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter per preached the first message of the church, he preached how that Jesus died and gave his life for the sins of all of humanity. And he was standing in, a, in the middle of a crowd of men who had sent Jesus to the cross. Just 50 days before, just 50 days ago, Many of them, I'm sure, 
for the same crowds who shouted, crucify him. And Peter didn't let him off the hook. Let me tell you something, a good preacher won't let you off the hook. Peter didn't let him off the hook. He said, the same Lord that you crucified, God has raised him from the dead. And he has made both Lord and Christ. And they came face to face with the consequences. The Bible says it this way. They were pricked in their heart. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? What do you mean, what shall we do? We sent Jesus to the cross. We didn't recognize him for who he was. Grace was in action before us and we ignored it. We resisted it. We rejected it. How do I come back from that? I had the opportunity to worship him. And I sent him to the cross. And he died there. Men and brethren, what shall we do? What do you do? How do you come back? How do you start over from there? Let me tell you something. We stand in their shoes today. Because it was my sins and it was your sins that put Jesus on the cross. It was my failures and your failures that caused him to go to the cross. Love sent him, but he went there to pay for the wages of sin is death. And he took it upon himself for me and for you. And how do you overcome that? How do you start over from sending the Son of God to the cross to die? And Peter said unto them, repent, change your mind. That's all you got to do, Jacob. Admit it. And Jacob in the crossing of Jabbok said, God, I see it coming down and I am not worthy. I'm not worthy, God. I'm not worthy. This is what Peter said. Peter said, repent of your sins. Acknowledge what you've done before God. Because in order to have a new life, you have to bury your past. In order to have new hope, you've got to bury what was yesterday. You've got to bury the old man. And Peter said, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And he said, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now we're in a holy moment here. But if you have never been baptized for the remission of sins, I want to encourage you. Whether it's this Sunday or next Sunday, you need to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because it's a church ceremony. Not because we want cool pictures. But because the new beginning that you need is at the crossing of water. And if you'll just meet him there, just like Jacob did. He said, Jacob, I don't see you through the lens of your yesterday. Now I've put my name on you. And when the Bible says in Galatians that when we are baptized, we are baptized into Christ. That we have put on Christ. And when we are baptized, God doesn't look at your yesterday. He doesn't look at your old name. But he sees his own name written upon you. And it's the name of the one who was slain. It's the name of the Lamb of God who is spotless and pure and so if you come here today and you've got so many regrets and mistakes behind you that you don't know how to start over I want to tell you Jesus wants to meet you here 
I want our praise team to come right now. I'm going to pray. And as I pray, as you're moved, I just want some people to step out of this aisle and walk to the front and say, God, I'm ready for my new beginning. Heavenly Father, God, you see this service, Lord. You ordained it in heaven. And God, I pray that somebody would get a revelation of their need of baptism. Lord, maybe they were baptized just because. But God, I pray that somebody would meet you at the crossing of water. God, that somebody would meet you at the point of their need today. Lord, we pray a prayer of repentance in one accord. God, we failed you in so many different ways. We acknowledge our sin. Come on, that's it. Reach out and pray right now. Lift your hands. We acknowledge our sin before you. And Lord, we want to meet the God who wants to change our name. The God who wants to put his name upon our life. To put his name upon our future. To put his name upon our tomorrows. Come on, that's it. Somebody reach out and touch him and say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Lord, I can't make it without you. Lord, I don't want to live without you. God, I regret who I've been and how I've come here. But God, today, I'm leaving it behind in the name of Jesus.